When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Lefstetz Podcast. My guest today is writer and music historian Harvey Kubernick. Harvey, good to have you on the podcast. Delighted to be here, Bob, or Robert. Okay, you've written 19 books. Which one is your favorite? It's, um, I'm not one of those people, oh, the songs are like my children. No. There's one book that is is has penetrated the difference deep into me, and it's the one I'm asked the most about. It's a book called Turn Up the Radio, uh, Rock, Pop, and Roll in Los Angeles, 1956 to 1972, partially because it's a big coffee table book with color in black and white and illustrations. And it was the book that was the most joyous to do because the publisher and the editor at Santa Monica Press said, do what you want. And I think there were two or three emails or a couple of notes, but no intrusion. And it helped that he was an LA native as well. And uh, it, it really speaks deep to me because I got to stretch back and, and really chronicle something from 1956 to 1972, kind of my wingspan from like age six to 21. I mean, that's a pretty seminal time period for all of us. And uh, it still remains uh, my most potent title and the one that people ask me to autograph the most about. Okay, you're born in 51. So you're five or six years old. Were you listening to the radio at that point? Oh yeah, by, by 1956, I'm like almost six. The radio was blaring. I mean, there wasn't even a transistor radio then. It was on my parents' kitchen table in uh, downtown Los Angeles. I was going to Coliseum Street Elementary School, and uh, we had a black and white Philco television, but the radio was always on on stations like KMPC, and 
a lot of the rhythm and blues stations and some jazz stations. I didn't know who the people were, but my parents were so Sinatra'd out and Tommy Dorsey'd out and into Julie London. It was always on because there were middle of the road radio stations in this town, like with big wattage. And so I just heard this music, but I was drawn to kind of the R&B music because it was loud and raucous and there were horns. I didn't know what brass or horns meant, but I recognized after three, four, five, there were rotation songs. I didn't know you could play a song more than once on the radio back then. I didn't know there were playlists or whatever, but it it was very, um, it was deep penetration. Okay, I remember my own introduction, and I'm two years younger than you. Not that we're both not old at this particular point in time, however young at heart. And first, I remember buying uh, cartoon records like Rough and Ready, who were on the television. (laughs) Then at the turn of the decade to the 60s, that's when the folk boom was happening. I remember my mother buying If I Had a Hammer, Peter, Paul, and Mary I would listen to the baseball games. At this point, there were transistors, but I certainly remember becoming addicted when the Beatles broke really in January of 64. So what was your experience? I have to tell you, the two years that I'm older than you on feels like 10 years as far as, uh, you know, legacy, archive, catalog, and just library action because I knew a world of the Beatles for five, six, or seven years. I mean, I went with my parents at about age nine to the Pomona Fair to see Spike Jones, which, well, it eventually led me to Zappa. But, uh, you know, I did see Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show. Oh, you got to see this wacky guy, Harvey. I didn't really know what was going on, but I saw that. My parents embraced rock and roll and music. They didn't keep me away from it. But the 50s, and this is the other thing, you mentioned baseball. Initially, the the middle-of-the-road radio stations were on places like KMPC or KFI, which stands for Farmer Information. So you'd listen to baseball, and then the there weren't pre-game and post-game shows back then that much. So you'd have that station on waiting for baseball, Vince Scully, Jerry Doggett. But you'd have two hours before and two hours after. And the disc jockeys were sometimes in the booth or at the games. So it all kind of collided. But I mean, I started collecting records. I started looking at records at Wallach's Music City. In 1958 and 59, I I didn't have funds to buy them at age eight or nine, but I did buy for 69 cents uh, Haley Mills' Let's Get Together. (laughs) Because I saw The Parent Trap. Now, did I know it was done at Sunset Sound with Tutti Camerata? Did I know any of that stuff? No. All I know is she was a pretty girl. She didn't look like the girls in my school, she also talked funny. But on the record, Let's Get Together, I thought it was an American girl with blonde hair. And uh, that, but it wasn't hitting me as hard as buying the coasters at the same time, shopping for clothes, searching. I bought the coasters 
there were no albums there really. Um, I bought the Coasters records literally the same time, and I decided, well, why don't I have one foot in pop and R and B? Then they had this thing called race music that they kept mentioning. Here's something from the race department. I didn't even know what it meant, but the music had comedy and tension and drama and multi voices. I couldn't quite grasp all the lyrics the way I grab now. And somehow that devotional art that I put myself through brought me to people like meeting Lieber and Stoller. This was unfathomable to me. So it was planted early. And then, by the way, in late 60, I heard Janet Dean and the Beach Boys on the radio because they're on the AM radio. They're on KFWB. They're on KRLA. Um, and then I went to see the Beach Boys in 1962 in Culver City at a record store. It was kind of a sock hop. I now realize they were lip syncing. There were no amps. They were holding the guitars wearing Pendleton's. I just thought, wow, this is really cool. So I was already in the rock and roll scheme dream before the Beatles showed up. And then um, the Big Bang, my parents were devoted, and I'm sure you watched it, to the Jack Parr show. Of course. Wait, you're not going to tell me that on that Friday night when they showed the video... Most people don't I even got, know that exists in November. You're talking 63. to Harvey Kibberdick. I got two witnesses. We can call them on the phone right now. <laughs> Bob Kushner is one of them. So I, I was watching Jack Parr because I liked, uh, you know, Arthur Treacher and I like seeing Judy Garland and, and Morgan Mason and all these people on and James Mason. And I liked his demeanor and he'd been in World War II. My father was in World War II. I kind of felt this is really good. And remember, I was also hooked on the Oscar Levant show. But Oscar Levant, which was filmed out here, he didn't have rock and roll music people on. But I remember I was so Beach Boyed out. And yes, I did surf, but I had a five-foot limit and a 9'6 uh, con board. We have a... My, God, my daughter, Randy, saw this rock music, this group attracting a lot of attention in, in London on our trip there. I'd like you to see it or something like that. I, I saw that clip. Now, I didn't know it was called Some Other Guy. I didn't, but I saw that clip. And I, I'm i 11. I walked downstairs, and I threw out my Brill cream, and I combed my hair down. And my mother said, you're going to the barber tomorrow. I said, it's the same hair. I just combed it down. She said, what happened to you? Are you hanging out with hoodlums or something? I said, no. Uh, and there's no VCR. There's no repeat. I said, I just, I, I heard a new music. I, something happened on, and we also, we were all pretty bummed out in the winter of 1963 uh, because of the John F. Kennedy murder. It was just a, a good light. And what I did is I took my Beach Boy fan club button and I put it in a safe and I sort of defected to the Beatles temporarily. And then in February 64, I heard they were coming to town. It's not the Ed Sullivan show. I read that there was some kind of, they were going to be in town or some television event. I couldn't get it. And my bar mitzvah was end of February 1964. And I got some early bonds earlier, some gifts. And my parents said, well, I, I, 
some some mails arrived for you. There was like money there. And I said, I'm taking some of that money and I'm buying a ticket to go to the Wilshire Theater on Wilshire and La Cienega because the Beatles are going to be there. They're not going to be there, Harvey. I said, they're going to be there. He said, oh, it's probably something that they're doing in a studio. Go ahead. Just be home by eight o'clock at night. You know, that was always the deal. You can stay up till eight and you could stay up till 10 when you're 16 and you could stay up till midnight when you're 18. I saw that show. I thought they were there in person. Uh, first of all, it's the longest Beatles set that they ever did. Did I know that the Beach Boys and Leslie Gore taped their segments, I believe, in a studio in Burbank? No. There was Leslie Gore. There was the Beach Boys, but the Beatle thing. And then I went to a department store and I bought the album on VJ. And I went to Wallex Music City and there were people lined up. We waited till they cracked the thing up because there were shipments coming up the street from Capitol Records. I don't know. That's one of the reasons I'm here today. Okay, let's go back to Wallach's Music City. I grew up on the East Coast. I didn't come to LA permanently until I was 21. Um, the story was always you could preview the records in a booth. Was that true? It's so true. I was talking to Russ Teitelman, who you know, obviously, right. about this. I'm living in West Hollywood, going to junior high, and of course, 66 to 69, I'm going to Fairfax High School. You notice I never hide my age or do any of that stuff. I will tell you specific stuff. So I'm in Hollywood, 66 to 69, but I'm also in junior high in the area. I made a bike ride and a skateboard ride um, from Wallach's Music City, but I had gone to Wallach's Music City in the late 50s. They had six or eight preview booths. You could take a record that had demonstration marked on it, a white label, not an acetate. The labels would have testers. You could go into a listening booth and you could play a record. And I remember playing albums, not 45s. Uh, my brother and I heard Jan and Dean's Command Performance album. My Love that record. Well, there you go. It... It blew my fucking mind. Like, Jan and Dean, you mean these guys that I, that were on like something called Liberty Records or they were on this Dory label? Because I was kind of, I knew it. I was reading the KFWB headline, the Carolee Beat. I was on it, which is why I never could even get through the law school application. Uh, it, it just didn't work for me. So, Wallach's Music City, you'd go up there with your friends. Uh, I was talking to Mickey Dolenz about this because he worked for a summer in 63 behind the counter at Wallach's Music City. After he was already Circus Boy? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's before Monkeys and before he did episodic television. And I said, you were behind the counter, but I know you, I didn't really know him. But he said, yeah, Bobby Darren came in. And I said, what about those listening booths, Mickey? Wasn't it cool to play the records well, he said well you're supposed to buy them after and i said yeah but my friend peter piper who i still talk to longboarder surfer this is a little later when the hair album came out and the vanilla fudge album came out and the psychedelic and they all, and some hendrix albums came out he would go to the listening booths because he was going to hollywood professional school 
pretty much down the street because I knew the Hollywood professional people, Peggy Lipton, the guys from the Sunrays. Peter would do a one-hitter. I'm outing you, Peter. He, he'd have a joint, he'd take a big hit, and he'd hold it for like three minutes because he was a surfer with good lung power. And then he'd put on Are You Experience? And then he would just inhale. We'd look at the booth and you'd see this smoke in his booth. And then he'd quickly open it up, you know? And uh, it was, it was, you would go there. Well, I was going there once a week for 25, 30 years. Okay. Not every day and every night. Okay, I one would, thing you've informed me of that I never knew previously is that these were not records from the stock. They were demonstration records. How long could you listen and how many records could you listen to before a clerk said, get the hell out of here? I do know one thing. There was some sign that said three or six albums limit. I remember that. You could spend an hour if you wanted, but there were people lined up to also listen. And sometimes, I mean, I remember when the Beatles album shipped, and I'm talking about the Beatles story, some double interview album. Yeah, yeah, the white. Yeah, yeah, that Gary Usher Usher was involved putting that together. Every booth was stacked. All of a sudden, girls started showing up in the listening booths. You know, it was kind of a male. That's not true. There were women listening to Bobby Rydell and all that stuff. But when the Beatles showed up, we couldn't get near the listening booths anymore because there were three or four girls in five or six booths listening to the Beatles interview album, which were press conferences being mashed together. The world had changed. Okay, let's go back generally. Pull the lens back because I know the New York radio market and I know certain things about LA, but I didn't experience. You talked about KRLA. Okay. And then you there's KHJ. There's B. Mitchell Reed. What was Top 40 Radio like, and how did it evolve into the FM sound? Because I had the luxury, we'll call it, of listening to the radio in the late 50s. I even think Tennessee Ernie Ford was on KMPC when I first heard it, or he had just departed. But there were some big disc jockeys, Johnny Magnus, Dick Whittington, you heard this, I mean, KFWB was a jazz station in about 1958. B. Mitchell Reed was on. Uh, B. Mitchell Reed was a jazz DJ? For Well, first of all, he was a better, more jazz guy than people. He was there at, at KFWB. It was, a, it was a jazz station with some MOR leaning. Sinatra gave him a watch one time, thanking him for playing records. <laughs> I remember him showing me that. And then he departed us. I was I was almost going to sit Shiva. What do you mean he's not on the... Where's B. Mitchell? I didn't know he flew the coop and went back to WMCA with that good guy stuff and all that. And, you know, because I was reading 16 Magazine when Gloria Stavers jumped in, you could kind of track Dick Biondi, a DJ. You could hear about B. Mitchell and the good guys. Um, I regret I never heard this guy that my New York friends that have all moved here told me, boy, you would really dig. Was his name Dan Ingram? Yeah, of course. Was he good? He was good, but you have to know that it was really a uh, a superstar lineup on WABC. Scott, Mo- Scott Muni? No, Murray. it went from Dan Ingram's in the morning. Suddenly, I forgot it was in the afternoon. Then came Cousin Brucey. Then came Scott Muni. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So it was a murderer's row. There was 10-10 wins in WMCA for those who were really hip, but most of the listening was done on WABC till the flip format in the 70s. I'll tell you when things really changed in this town. So KRLA, KFWB went kind of color radio with Chuck Lord 60. They were playing the Richie Valens people. Wink Martindale was on the, the channel. Um, that was rock and roll. But then KRLA, I think they were birthed in 1960, but they were actually involved putting on teen dances. And I'll use the word, they had a slightly more adventurous playlist. Not they were playing deep cuts or albums. Where KFWB, I think, was really pretty rotation-oriented, top 40. You heard a lot of the same records over and over, but KRLA had hitbound stuff or just sneak peeks it peaks it something was happening there but the big bang happened maybe it was april 1965 uh bill drake decides or gets involved with changing khj into this top 30 outlet and khj had the had broadcast the Lakers from like 61 to 65. The Lakers, when they came to town in 60, 61, did not have a radio or a TV deal. And then then Bill Drake comes to town. And also on that channel was Michael of Michael Scotland Yard, Michael Jackson, who you probably knew when he was on KBC for years. He he, He had a South African accent. I don't think he was English. But all of a sudden, he's kind of gone. And Chick Hearn is gone, and all of a sudden we're unveiling Boss Radio, and then all of a sudden there is there is Don Steele, real Don Steele. There's Sam Riddle. There's 18 songs being played in the hour with such fluidity and Coppertone ads and teen dances and no interviews. That and you're 13, 14 years old. KHJ was sort of like the sea parted because it had great bla- I mean there were billboards of the original jocks. What he what's that's what they look like? It was like always oh, six white guys with like pompadours. But the music and they also KHJ and Carolay did this. Dick Morland was a, the program director there. They had an alliance with the regional music. They were in bed with them, maybe promoting shows or doing exclusives or people from Gold Star Recording Studios were running up there with acetates of a morning session of Sonny and Cher to break it worldwide or have the first debut. And so you were surrounded by KRLA, KFWB. I, of course, had two transistor radios on my bike. It was a Schwinn Stingray. I had one on each dial. but. I didn't have a third radio to go hear KGFJ or KDA or the R&B stuff. So that's what I listened to late at night. And then around 65 or 66, Wolfman Jack arrives through XERB. That's a border radio thing, but it had 50,000 watts from Chula Vista, uh, San Diego area. He was playing different music than everybody. Plus, it was a shtick when there was howling and... Nobody had headphones. You were just trapped by this stuff. But, you know, it was not, uh, it just felt that they were our guides or they got us through our homework. 
And and then you, of course you always had the 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 Dodgers, and then the Angels had come to town in 1961. And also, it's it's an era in the 60s. And when I bring this up, New Yorkers just shake their heads and go, you're right. What happens is um, the Lakers come to town in 60. The Dodgers come to town in 1958. UCLA wins their first 10 championships of 12 starting in the 62 to 63 seasons. The Rams are here. The Olympic Auditorium is buzzing. We're watching teams like the Lakers play the Boston Celtics in the finals. And even though you only see one game a week on television, LA is getting all this attention that used to be pretty New York and East Coast centric. And then the whole enchilada busted open the Dodgers win the championship in 59 against the Chicago White Sox. It just brings media attention when you're a local team and they're playing rock and roll songs at rallies and all that. But in 63, the Dodgers swept the Yankees in the World Series. And all of a sudden, LA is really under the microscope. So I think all kinds of disc jockeys then start transferring here, relocating there's English accents. There's Lord Tim and Tommy Vance. There's like British people on the radio. What do you mean Sam Riddle has gone to another station? B. Mitchell Reed is, where is he after KFTB? Well, he goes on to KPBC. All of a sudden, there's so many new outlets and voices. I, I lost track of some of this stuff, but I was inundated with it. It was, you know, it was, it was deep. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles. 
podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Okay, certainly I lived through this era. California was everything. Was this just your environment, or did you feel that it was all happening around you? I knew one thing. I had advantage over some people, I think, because my parents moved here from Chicago in 1947. They're from the Midwest. I met New Yorkers and people from Chicago or relatives coming from out of town I knew there was other worlds out there, but I knew I know what the power of this music. I mean, I met you maybe in 2004. Didn't you tell me the Beach Boys were one of the reasons you moved here? I wouldn't say one of the reasons. I would say the reason. I remember you telling me, and you weren't hiding your loyalty and devotion to them. And I also know you're one of those guys who obviously probably went to law school here instead of the deal back east, and then you move out here to make a living or something, right? Did you go to law school out here? Absolutely. Okay, so the thing is, you were so proud of the magnetic pool of I Get Around and stuff. I remember that conversation, uh, you, you know, because you were just so upfront of what the pool of that music did to you. And um, I didn't know it would start that kind of migration, but I just knew something was happening, and I can't avoid this, but you also need to know there's a slight backstory. From 1962 to 1972, my mother worked for Columbia Pictures in Gower Gulch as a secretary stenographer, but in 65 to 68, she worked for Raybert Productions. Wow, I didn't know that. Well, if I ever got a chance to write some liner notes on Monkey's albums, I'd roll that all out. But, you know, I asked a couple times and uh, somebody said, well, you know, uh, you don't really know the Monkeys." I said, okay, I just did write uh, a Monkeys book of 500 pages with my brother, Kenneth, Gary Strobel, and Henry Dilts' fo- photograph. So I met in 67. So my mo- mother worked for Raybert Productions. I was at the Monkeys press conference and she also typed some of the scripts. I'm uh, I'm at the two press conferences in 65, 66, really. I'm at the preview house with my family seeing the pilot, which wasn't very funny. They had to recut it and do some dances. But, uh, you know, I'm meeting people 66, 67, 68 in the commissary. And remember, I had an after-school job in junior high and especially high school, so I couldn't go every day and hang out. I even couldn't go weekly. But I... It was also about 100 yards from Wallach's Music City. So my deal was, I'm going to Wallach's Music City, then I'm doing a four-hour hang to watch a few episodes or an episode, and then three weeks later, maybe something. But you're running into Dennis Hopper, 
and Jack Nicholson, pre-Easy Rider. Hey, kid, how you doing? Have a milkshake in the... It was, I can't even call it a commissary. It was a canteen. And I I can't say I remain friends with them, but for decades, I say, kid, hey, Hilda, I mean, you, you know, it was just fascinating watching the phonetic energy of the monkeys. And I also got to peek in or bring some sheet music up the RCA studio where they recorded right adjacent to Wallach's Music City. I didn't know all the specifics, but... It was just great to, to kind of not learn about the business, but to hold an acetate. Or could you use the Xerox machine for the sheet music of I'm a Believer? All this stuff is happening, which is why the monkeys, especially in Turn Up the Radio and you name it, they're prominently displayed in my adventures. I just thought the music was fantastic. And then you get to meet Paul Williams, a songwriter, or Harry Nielsen, who's maybe he was still working at the bank. I'm not sure. But you get to meet these people because I didn't do the math, but I know there were all kinds of people involved in these records. It just wasn't like, I thought the Beatles did it all with Mel Evans, you know, turning the drum set around. (laughs) So it was very important hanging out beyond the monkeys, being able to say hello to Cary Grant and this kind of stuff. I wasn't starstruck. I didn't ask for autographs, but I just felt I was in Hollywood, when the studio system is kind of breaking up and rock and roll and soundtracks. I went to the head premiere. I remember that. (laughs) Elliot Mintz was there too, broadcasting or something. Um, But it was just, it was what we did. Plus, everything was so collaborative then. People from other studios would send you a soundtrack of Sound of Music or something like that. Everybody seemed to be in this game. There There seemed to be about 300 people in the trip. Instead of 3,000 or 30,000 or 300,000 like now. Small world, a lot of noshing together, and there weren't a lot of 24-hour restaurants. There was the Hollywood Ranch Market, which was our savior, where you could get, oh, God, Jan Henderson used to eat chicken gizzards there. That I couldn't do that. I like the turkey leg stuff. But you'd go there after rock and roll concerts like at the Kaleidoscope, which are, which was our short-lived kind of Fillmore East in 67 to 68. It's all there. And then you'd hitchhike home. Nobody had a car. Everybody was cool. Uh, it was just wonderful. And then, thank God, things like um, age restrictions started lifting. I could go to the Whiskey Go-Go in 1967 or 68, really. It was 18 instead of 21. I didn't drink liquor. I, and I also looked 14. I think I was the only person at Fairfax High without a fake ID. My mother said, no smoking, no fake ID, no beer drinking. I said, okay, I'm, I'm with it. I, I think I told her I smoked pot in 1969. And um, you're allowed to do it once. Okay. You're in high school. Your mother's working for Raybert. You mm-hmm. go to Wallach's Music City. Has music taken over your life or, you know, are you a regular high school student and this is just your interest? And are you going to shows at this point? I was a little bit possessed, but I wasn't obsessed, obsessed because I had a 20-hour-a-week after-school job. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at Clinton Laboratories, like La Brea and Pico. 
so I was diligent that I had to go to high school and have this job, but I had income for shows and records. I had 60, I had $80. I could go to the frigate record store on third and Crescent Heights. And then friends of mine that had a car would occasionally take me down to downtown LA, almost Watts to dolphins of Hollywood record store or flash records. And they had all this interesting, what we now call R&B and soul music. I was going to two concerts or clubs a week from 65 to 70 to 80, to twice a week concerts. They were affordable, $3.50. I went to six of the 13 Shrine Exhibition Hall concerts that Pinnacle Productions put on, late 67 to 68 into early 69 maybe. And you spent three and a half dollars. The girl gave you change out of the cigar box. You walk in there and another girl would hand you a piece of bazooka bubble gum. You'd see the vanilla fudge. You'd see Richie Havens. So, but I also was going to baseball games and sporting events. So I had the budget for maybe two concerts or club things and maybe a sports event. But I should also say 300 yards from Fairfax High, which was on Melrose and Fairfax, was the Ashgrove Club. So, and that was sometimes $2.50. Plus, we had hip school teachers for field trips. They would take us into the Ashgrove, and it had no, there was no age limit. And uh, you could see Muddy Waters, you could see Albert King, you could say hello to them. It was mostly folk and blues stuff. Occasionally, there was a rock act. I saw Taj Mahal with Jesse Ed Davis in 68 or 9. But that was quite an education. I mean, I never knew there was an ethnomusicology department at UCLA. I probably would have majored in it. Uh, I never even thought about those things. But it was certainly in my DNA. I didn't want to be in a band. I was in a band for three weeks in 1965 as a drummer in a surf group called the Riptides. It just didn't work out. The guitar player had a big ego or something. I said, I'll just be a librarian and a collector and groove on the music. In the back of my mind, a couple of girls have emailed me recently and said, why didn't you ever become the DJ that we wanted you to be? And I said, I didn't know the right people. I didn't even have the funds for audition tapes. I didn't know anything. But here I am now, so thank you. Okay, How did you end up going to San Diego for school? And for those of us who live in Southern California, it's really a different mentality, even though it's not that far away. There was one requirement regarding college. Harvey Kubernick with a 2.1 GPA, with the Vietnam War raging on, uh, has to make a decision. Oh, I can get a student deferment if I go to West L.A. Junior College or LACC. I went to both. Okay, you can go to school for $6.50. And if I go to West L.A. College, I'm five miles away from the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, and there's concerts. But it meant a lot to me. It's, it's important. I remember when they were building West L.A. College. And I walked in there and I said, I want to go here when you're finished. 
Well, all you have to do is have a 2.0 GPA or be age 18 and you can enroll. And I said, well, I want to enroll right now. But it's, and it was just about six bungalows. And I said, I want to go here, but also I need to find a job. I need to go see concerts and buy records. Well, they're building a library over here. Why don't you go talk to the construction site? I walked in there and said, I'm going to go to this school. I want to work at this library. And they said, we're actually looking for a student for the library. Would you like a job? Myself and my friend Bob Sherman from Fairfax High each got 15 or 20-hour jobs. So you could go to class, go to the library. But I was like stocking shelf, but I was making sure Downbeat, Rolling Stone, Ebony, Ramparts were stocked in the magazine section. And then I... I'm, I'm in, I have a student deferment. I graduate with an AA degree. Well, you got to go to college. You got to finish up. Well, there was one requirement. I had to find a school where I could still hear KLOS FM or the FM radio or some of the AM radio stations at night. San Diego was 130 miles and some of the, you could still pick up some of the radio stations. And I followed the San Diego State football team. And I said, you know, just maybe I should go down to San Diego. I have a surfboard. Um, I could have gone to Valley State. I, you could even have gone to SC or UCLA. They, they welcomed you then. So I went to San Diego State. It was a fantastic, pathetic, horrible experience. Because every weekend, I would hitchhike back, or if I got a car or something, and come back home Friday afternoon till Sunday night. It just wasn't working for me. But I graduated, and that's how I ended up in San Diego, and I would listen to KPRI FM and see some great concerts down there, because luckily, I didn't know the routing of rock and roll then, that if you played in Santa Monica or the Fabulous Forum, you would include a San Diego date. So I got to see Traffic and Fairport Convention and Mose Allison at Funky Quarters or Mark Allman on the campus at San Diego State. It made my world operational. Okay, so you graduate from college, then what? Well, I got a degree in health literature and sociology, some cockamamie experimental thing, which was sort of evolved out of the heritage experiment or something. You could pick three upper division things and create your own major. And uh, I said, okay, I wanted, I was, my major was library science. I didn't get accepted to the library science program. So they said, why don't you be a special major? It's going to be the hip thing in the future. I think it was discontinued after a year and a half. So I have this degree in sociology and health and literature. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'll think about being a probation officer or something. Maybe I'll do something like that. I didn't want to be a teacher. There was always this little thing in the back of my mind. Uh, I didn't even know what a record label really was until 71. Maybe I'll do this and it'll lead to something else. Well, what happened in 1972, under the direction of Dr. James L. Wheeler, <clears throat> um, he started, I was almost like the teaching assistant, who I was. I helped build the curriculum. I had a conversation with him and I said, this rock and roll, he was a Dylan fanatic and a lyric freak. I said, we, we dialogued. He said, let's start an upper division, fully accredited 
rock and roll literature class for full credits. And the paperwork was done and all that. And all of a sudden, okay, it's been sanctioned. A story ran in Billboard on it. All of a sudden, okay, what are we going to do? Well, we may invite Iggy Pop or Danny Sugarman, who knew some of the doors, or Carolyn Hester, who who had records out. I picked her up at a Greyhound station. I remember that. Sharon Lawrence, who who worked with Al Cooper, Sounds of the South label, and, and Elton John for many years. People in the industry, I would like, they would find us initially, but the game changer was a guy named Graylin Landon at RCA Records in 72, called me in the dorm at Zura Hall. I was probably listening to the doors and said, I'm very, I went to USC. I'm very proud of what you're doing and the seriousness of what you're doing. You have a librarian aspect and, you know, you're looking at this, the future of the music being preserved. We're going to start doing a series of monthly uh students and people being involved in seminars at RCA studio. Why don't you come? There's also tuna sandwich lunches on Saturday and you go there and this, I mean, you'll like the irony. Of course, there are no accidents as Andrew Lou Goldham says, I walk in there and there's Henry Mancini who I practically lived at the RCA studio, must've done 20 albums for the label. Harvey, this is Henry Mancini. Hello, Henry. Call me Hank. Are you a musician? Not really. He said, well, stick around. I'm going to be here, and Jose Feliciano is going to come by next month. You mean you could fucking meet these people? What? But it, it, was, it showed me I, I should be involved. I wanted to be maybe a writer. I didn't want to be a music critic. I didn't want to write record reviews. I wanted to see how the music was made. And instead of focusing on the lead singer or the pretty girl in a band, I'd seek out the engineer in the backroom people. I inherit because I learned that from my mother watching her type monkey scripts. She also typed monkey script, uh, scripts for Banyan, a TV show. Robert Forrester. I said, there's a lot of people involved. Since everybody wants to talk to those same people, I'm going to go into areas where the people are always sitting alone or nobody wants to talk to them. It's like talking to the eighth Laker off the bench instead of the stars. So the RCA seminars were very important. And I said, I think I can do some writing. I know I can talk to people. And it all kind of started there. Then I have to tell you, in 1974, February, I go to see Bob Dylan and the band at the forum. Bob Sherman's with me. We are seated next to Henry Mancini. And I think Chris <laughs> Mancini at the, at the show. Hi, hi, Mr. Mancini, call me Hank. I met you, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but what if, and I said, you know, I want to say something to you. I may never see you again. Anytime I see you do some of these interviews in Life Magazine or Downbeat, you talk about how you love the group Cream and some of this music. You're the only guy over 40 that doesn't, that doesn't say weird stuff about long-haired people you like rock. He said, well, I got my kids kid tickets for the Monterey Pop Festival. You were, you were there, and I got him tickets. And I said, wow. And he said, do you like classical music? And I said, oh, no, that, I don't do that. He said, well, why not? 
I said, I think part of it was in junior high, Miss Malloy used to say, young man, Andre Previn used to sit where you sat are sitting. I just couldn't groove with it. And then he said, well, maybe one decade you'll get into classical music. But it was a big lens. It was a tunnel that you could go to record companies, they'd hand you albums. And then I started writing for things like the Hollywood Press, $15. Thank you, Justin Pierce. Then I'd call up the LA Free Press, John Carpenter. Oh, oh, oh I'm just personally interested. Yeah. What was Justin Pierce doing then? Justin Pierce was the music editor of the Hollywood Press. Well, I didn't before, know Before he went to work for Norman Winter for about eight years. And then he went to law school after that. In fact, to this day, he's serving as an advisor for me. It just, I keep friends a long time. I'm still friends with four people from elementary school, three from junior high, five from high school, but nobody from San Diego State. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed from police brutality 
to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. So how do you end up getting a job as an A&R guy at MCA? I don't think the world works this way anymore. I was, I was writing for Melody Maker. I went to England in 75 and said, I want to write. And, this, and I was constantly hearing, you can't write. You have no communication skills. I never used that energy as revenge or any of that stuff. My mother said, revenge is a wasted emotion. You can kind of do a lot of things. You know how to talk. You're a fucking yenta. But you know how, you have to be able to put that stuff on the page. And I said, well, I never got a journalism career. I never could write for the, the school newspaper. I got rejected from the San Diego State Daily Aztec. Of course, now they're sending letters asking for... You know, money with Marion Ross and Art Linkler and all their all their extinct you know alumni. I'm now like listed, you know, like distinguished alumni. They, you weren't very helpful, people. You're not getting a check. But I realized I think I can talk to musicians, even though I can't really play an instrument. Interviewed Brian Auger for L.A. Free Press. Went to England in '75. And I said, I'd like to do some articles for Melody Maker, which had a readership of a million a week. And Ray Coleman and subsequently an editor, Richard Williams, who I still dialogue with, said, send us some stuff. And I was writing weekly the LA column in Melody Maker 75 to 81. In 1970, end of 77, the phone rings. It's Denny Rosencrantz working at MCA Records. I really like the way you've scouted bands because I went to see like the uh, Dickies at the Whiskey wrote about it and Derek Green from the A&M label, I think, flew in and signed them. And Denny Rosencrantz was noticing that I was touting people before it was fashionable I just would catch them. Come on, I I could be a talent scout. I never knocked on a door and he said, how would you like to work for MCA Records? And I said, well, yes, what do I do? He said, find people to sign. I said, I think I can do that. Um, he said, well, let's give you a year to see what you can do. So kids, you used to be able to get jobs without connections, nepotism, and all the cronyism and all the other stuff. This thing, honestly, I also ran into Denny at a Bob Marley and the Whalers show. I'm sorry, they were called the Whalers then. I don't want any emails. I saw Denny at the Roxy. I kind of was introduced to him when Springsteen played the Roxy in 75. And then we went to the I saw him at the Santa Monica Civic Show, Springsteen in 76. And I didn't really know him well, but I would run into him and our mutual friend Russ Reagan at a restaurant called Ting Ho, which was on Hollywood and Highland. And he said, why don't you come join the label? I said, I'm there. And I, I did 11 and a half months there. And I, I think I really delivered there. History's proven me right. 
oh, who did you sign or what did you do that history has proven you were correct? Well, in 1975, I met a young engineer named Jimmy Iovine and did a full-page story on him in Melody Maker. And I, he, was, he wanted to be a record producer, not just an engineer. And I, he invited me to, uh, actually it was the Springsteen people, invited me to see all the shows at the Roxy show. Jimmy was in the booth of the truck. I knew he had talent. And so in 78, I get a call from Jimmy Iovine and he said, I've just done the Southside Johnny album with, with Stephen Van Zandt. We thanked you on the album. I go, thank you. Cause I, I was giving some initial early print to some of these people. And he said, listen, uh, he had done a golden earring record for MCA and he maybe had worked on a return to forever record. And he said, I'm a record producer. I've just seen Tom Petty at the bottom line. I need to work with him. And I said, it's funny, I'm having a meeting this week with all the people at MCA because MCA has bought ABC Records. And, and, and I was doing some interesting concepts about bringing in people to write some liner notes. I did a little bit of work with, um, on, with John Hyatt on the Slugline album. I brought in a drummer. My friend Andy Bruce produced it. John Van Hammersfeld did the front cover. And, and I lobbied for Jimmy to be considered to be a producer. Obviously, the engineer comes with it. For Tom Petty, who was looking, actually with his manager, Tony Demichiotis, who I knew as early as 1975 when he worked for Conk Records. And he'd come to town and I knew him and I dialogued with him. And then I said to him, I went up to his house in Nichols Canyon. I said, I'd like to recommend, you need to really meet and work with Jimmy Iovine. He gets a really crisp, crisp sound. Uh, listen to the Southside Johnny record. Um, I flew to New York to Jimmy's apartment. I was introduced to the DJ Carol Miller was her name. Then I had a meeting with Jimmy at the Sunset Marquee. And I was initially greeted by some of my fellow workers Oh, Harvey, he's just an engineer. I said, but the engineers are now becoming producers too. I, the, you know, Denny Rosencrantz liked the idea. Tony Dimitri thought it was interesting. I never heard anything after that. I was let go by MCA at the 11 and a month mark. Not just me. There was a big hundred people layoff. And then three weeks later, I opened up Record World or Cashbox and I see like a signing photo of like Tom Petty, MCA, and maybe Jimmy's in the photo or mentioned. Okay, that felt good. But also at MCA, because I knew Tom Petty, not just from seeing him at clubs, I invited him to a Carl Perkins party I put together for Jet Records when I was doing some work for Jet Records. And introduced him to to Carl Perkins and realized what a record nut he was and how much he loved Los Angeles. And I said, you know, I'm going to meet Del Shannon. I think there has to be something where the new people work with the old people. I have this, I don't even want to say vision or idea. It wasn't like that. I love Del Shannon. I saw him at the Roxy in 75 with the Robs backing him. He can still deliver. He can still sing. He just needs some songs and people to work with. And he still can go to the Philippines and Ireland and do all of it. And I set up a meeting at Bug Music on Hollywood Highland. 
with Dan Burgoyce, who was Dell's manager. And there's Tom meet Dell. And that deal got put together. It came out subsequently on Al Corey's network records label. My credit on the back of it is Organic Catalyst. So I think I was doing some very interesting... Oh, and let me tell you another thing. If it means something, the first person, Russ Reagan said to me, don't sign your friends. Okay. He had run uni records that became MCA records. Don't give your friends record deals. You'll last three weeks. But I have a friend who's in a really good band named The Knack, Bruce Gary. I, I hang out with him. He went to Taft High. This band, I've just seen them at the Starwood. I've seen them in Redondo Beach at the Sweetwater Inn. You want to hit records? I've got the group. Quit trying to sign your friends. Okay. So I kind of watched the neck thing happen, but I will say Doug Figer and Bruce invited me to the My Sharona recording session, ironically at MCA Whitney Studios. And I watched My Sharona, and I was given a platinum album by the group for, for uh, My Sharona. And I wrote about them a bit in Melody Maker, but I just thought, hits, well done. So I look back at that world of MCA, I just kind of thought, well, somebody will hire me again at record labels to do the same thing. And it just didn't quite work out. And so the the writing thing became maybe the priority. So when I see Jimmy Iovine every three, four, five years at a function or some, you know, screening or something, he's always very accommodating, hugs, great. Um, I saw him at Patti Smith at the Roxy. And he, and he said, oh, I'm really happy you're doing these books. Um my daughter would like to really get a copy of your Leonard Cohen book. So I sent it to him at Apple. And, you know, I take pride in that. And I will say one thing. Until Warren Zanes put out his book on Tom Petty, which I was interviewed for, you, you don't really see the Harvey Kubernick small connection in the, in the parade. But I will say, uh, in 2014, when I was doing Turn Up the Radio, I said to Tony Dimitriotis, who I remained in contact with, will Tom write the foreword to my book? I know what Shindig and all these TV shows means to him. He said, I'll run it by Tom. Two days later, Tom would love to do it. Huge intro, name on the front cover, gorgeous essay. And that's meant a lot to me because books get discovered over decades and years. I didn't know you knew Tom Petty. And so the Petty people start buying the book just because Tom wrote an intro in the website people, we call them. So that is my connection to Tom and, and Jimmy and, and Del Shannon. And it continues today because 40 years later, Dan Burgoyce calls me and said, there's looks like there's a Del Shannon documentary that's going to be done. It won't be done until you're involved. And I said, oh, you know, meet my quote. I'll go on screen. He said, oh, no, no, you are needed to be in production. Can you be the consulting producer and help out on the writing? I said, I'm in. So these things have paid some dividends later, but I will say my dad was a stockbroker from age 40 to 86, 
And I knew that seeds in plantation sometimes take a long time to come to fruition. So that's my MCA story. I could I could bore you with bands I tried to sign or brought the tails up there or thought Martha was magical. It just, you know, um, the, the company wasn't set up, I think, for me. And the, some of the things I wanted to do, I wanted to have Fagan and Becker write liner notes on the jazz impulse stuff. Did I know? I said, it makes sense. They're on ABC Records. They're jazz people. Well, jazz doesn't sell. Okay, it won't happen. So that's the MCA world pre-UME. Okay, so prior to MCA, you're writing for Melody Maker. Mm -hmm. Is writing your only job, or do you have to have a day job to support yourself? I was writing. I was writing for Crawdaddy Magazine. I did a cover story in '76 on Robbie Robertson, and I went to the last waltz. I started writing for Sounds Magazine. Anywhere there was ten, fifteen, or twenty-five dollars to be made. I don't, I don't, I never got in Rolling Stone. That's been 50 years. Not interesting. Not interested. Enough money could trickle in because I think rent, and we're going back to the mid 70s, might have been $300 a month or something. It, you could kind of live there. Plus, I also want to say another thing the luxury of 1972 to 1980 of press parties. There were at least two or three a week. There was food at Chase's. There was food at the Bratskiller. There was nosh you could eat and not have to eat the next day. So I wasn't codependent on fast food and stuff like that. Um, and the RCA thing went on for about a year and a half. And Graylin Landon, I never knew what the word mentor meant. He just saw something in me that I had... Again, I'm coming from a library record collector world, but the writing was kind of run on sentences and sloppy, but he knew the information was so different. He said one time, uh, meet Jose Feliciano, Justin and I, and Pierce came to the recording session. You need to know that George Tipton or Rick Gerard or Al Schmidt or Richie Schmidt, who are these people? They're the engineers. Make sure to meet the engineers they're really important. Try to get their name out there. And I will say, for the first five or 10 years of my journalism career, if you even call it career, it was just an expedition, with the exception of the Jimmy Iovine feature, when I would quote engineers, nine out of 10 times, the editors would cut the engineers out of the article. Sometimes there was word counts, space problems. They weren't sexy. It, I was told that, but there's no really vibe about them. I just went, I went deeper into engineer stuff. And so the RCA seminars were very important because you could hear, God, I went to a press party there, the company playback of the Elvis in Hawaii show. Wow. And, he, and then Graylin, somebody from a record company badmouthed me to Graylin. And Graylin called me at home and he said, I'm beginning to know you. You, you, you're not the kind of guy that would take somebody's girlfriend. I said, no, I'm just happy if there's a girl near me. And he said, um, I've got two tickets for you and Justin Pierce for Elvis Presley, 72. I said, wow, my parents went to Vegas to see him. And my mother said, take down that Mick Jagger poster. Elvis Presley is the most handsome devil I've ever seen. 
My parents loved it. I said, well, I saw Elvis Presley in 1970 at the Forum. I took three buses to get there. And he said, I knew you love Elvis Presley. Pick up your tickets. Don't tell anybody. But if you come around 530, you'll be able to say hello to Colonel Parker. I said, really? You mean there's like his manager, right? Yeah. I, I wait there. The colonel comes out of the elevator in a cane. Hello. We meet him, blah, blah, blah. He was going to the ranch market. I remember that. And every word out of colonel was the word promotion, marketing, and merchandise. I was hearing these terms, marketing and merchandise, and standalone items and and billboards. I didn't know what was going on, but I was grasping. There's, there's machines behind the music people. There's teams. I know. I knew there was William Morris, Marshall Burl, who I knew started the rock division at William Morris and signed the Beach Boys. I knew about agents. I didn't know there were all these other people in alignments. Had my mind blown in '72 on the Elvis show. Saw him in '73. Saw him five or six times. And Graylin really, he just helped out because as this guy was bad route, bad-mouthing me comically, I should say, some of the record label publicists weren't calling me back anymore, or I wasn't getting the, I wasn't getting the records in the mail. Wow, what's going on here? But he said, let's have lunch every six months. I, I think you're going to be around for a while. And I never, I didn't really need that big push. Looking back, I did need that big push. It was Tim Harden, I look for a reason to believe. And he said, you got to work on the writing, but what you get out of our artists is so different. I said, he said, you know what's good about you? You don't hate disco music. I said, no. He said, would you like to interview the Hughes Corporation who have a hit with Rock the Boat? Nobody will talk to them because your other rock people don't want something to do with disco. They think it's phony and mechanical. I said, I'm there. And I, I just liked, and then I got invited to Donna Summers, Neil Bogart's people called. I went to the Donna Summers listening party where she was introduced in Beverly Hills. And then I got an assignment from Melody Maker. Barry White was going to England. This is maybe 76. Do you want to meet Barry White? Yes. I didn't have a problem with women wearing spandex dance. I didn't ever try to quaalude. My disco world is I love the throb, Vicky Sue Robinson. I love the, I just like the music because it was loud and it could bring me to studios like RCA United, Sunset. And you could also talk to the engineers and the producers about well, Elvis was just in two days ago doing pre-records on a, you know, what? Hank Crawford was the guy's name, an engineer. Leslie Crawford was his daughter. I remember that. And uh, I go to meet Barry White. You know, there's some people you connect with and like. Barry White is the closing chapter in my Turn Up the Radio book. Again, I wasn't in competition with people. I was in collaboration. That's why if you investigate my work or books, 
I'm a big believer in the multi-voice narrative, other people coming in. I'm like a John Ford with his stock company. Plus, I like bringing people into the action. I, I, I realize, you know, I'm writing for Melody Maker. That's a million people a week. Crawdaddy Magazine, it's really respected. There are people that are going to invest in me. I'm going to bring them into my own world and not care about fawning over somebody or meeting somebody or where does this lead to? And I went, I met Barry White. There's some people in life where you meet and you feel you've known them your whole life. And I, I said, I know a lot about you, Barry White. Well, what do you know? <clears throat> I said, oh, I, I know that because I read a couple articles. I know that you were involved with Bob and Earl's Harlem Shuffle and arranging. I know you were the drummer of Jackie Lee's Do the Duck, at least the road drummer. I know that you made an album on Delphi Records and you did an amazing version of In the Ghetto. He said, let's, let's do this interview at my home in Encino. And uh, I've got a movie theater there. I said, really? He said, do you like science fiction movies? I said, I'm the king of the Twilight Zone. He said, oh, I'm going to be playing Invaders from Mars today. Will you watch Invaders from Mars? He said, I know you dig Hillary Brooke in that movie. I said, I know that movie backwards and forward, but can we do an interview for Melody Baker after? He said, yeah, but will you also come to my recording session can't get enough of your love at MCA Whitney. I said, what? I don't even have to think about this stuff. I walk in there and I recognize a guy named Don Peak. Kind of knew who he was from the Hollywood Ranch Market. Wait, that's the guy from the Hollywood Ranch Market. He's actually a guitar player. Well, Harvey, do you know Wawa Watson? No. Wow. I watched that session. And I remember they ordered ribs in and had so much sauce on it. You could like carve your initials in the back of the ribs on the sauce because Barry liked nosh. <clears throat> and um, it was incredible. So Barry, I, I was so thankful for the introduction to him and a few other hangs over the 10 years because he had, quote, struggled for maybe 10 years to, to cut a record under his own name or get his work out there, or done little things for indie labels under other names. But he was Barry White. And even though my friends, oh, it's just disco music, Don Peak said, you know, it's love music. It's not disco music. Listen to Gene Page's charts. Charts. Harvey, you think you're cool because you know the name of, of an engineer? You need to know about the role of the arranger. Well, I know you know, Don Costa and Gordon Jenkins and Sinatra. He said, the arrangers are the secret sauce. So I kind of watched this session and I said, I'm sticking in this business. I don't know where it's going to go. I'm going to keep writing. And if nobody else wants to talk to these people, I'm going to talk to these people. Now, the disco thing dried up pretty quick. And um, your punk rock came in. We were both at the Whiskey in 77 for Elvis Costello's uh, debut. And did Johnny Cougar open? No. Okay. 
there was a local band. I forgot who opened. So that was good. And I said, what can I, what can I, I really like this Elvis Costello. I'm aware of all that energy at Stiff Records. I have to give this guy an album. I, I, I have a feeling he really likes the International Submarine Band and stuff like that. I handed him a rare vinyl of that album, which he could never find in England. He was so thankful. He ended up writing a liner notes for, I think, a double Graham Parsons reissue on Reprise. And over the years, I got to talk to him and interviewed him for Musician Magazine. So some of this journey starts, not because I'm determined and I'm going to do it. I often will eat the food nobody else wanted to taste. And I also wanted to bring the people, the readers. This is pre-internet. I wanted to bring the people with me. I, I just thought there was a little bit of obligation. Springsteen talks about we're all in this together. We're not free until everybody's free. But I knew because I developed a friendship with uh, Steve Van Zant going back to 75, that he, you just don't report. You have to bring people into the action and bring something different and new. And I think, I think I do that either with other people's interviews or visuals or finding the photos. Again, it's my librarian skills that I have access to collect pictures and tune dexes that augment the narrative that I put out there. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles. 
podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Okay. In your 50-year career, other than MCA, did you ever have to get a day job? Also, how do the economics work? Uh, the last time we discussed this, which is not recently, you were living in the San Fernando Valley. You did yeah. not own a car. You rented a car when you needed one. Yeah, I, so, I started renting cars for write-off purposes and transportation. Part of that was... I was either on the cusp of always getting a company car from a, a company or something that would fall through. So I said, well, why fix this car? And in three weeks, I'm going to have a new job with the company car. And, and so I made myself do a lot of walking and not be car dependent. This is even pre-pandemic. Um, and I like the idea of renting a car for a weekend and then being landlocked during the week and doing the 20 hours of writing, revision, editing, phone interviews. It just, it was the best way to get my action out there. Okay, you talk about these jobs, potential jobs with a company car. So have you su survived all these years since MCA on your writing alone, or have you had to supplement it with outside income? I've had to do some outside income income streams, but 95% of them are music related. For example, I started I started writing bios for record labels and bands. And I would get a fee because they they liked my writing. It was music related and i got to also veer away from the oldies music and the classic rock world i got to new bands that grew up reading me say hey i have a band will you work with us will you write a press release will you write a bio will you come to the show and i'd say no more freebies said, no no well we want to hire you the world changed when the internet arrived in the late 90s. <clears throat> Why did it change? My old catalog from all my articles, 73 to 98, all of a sudden are available. People are, and all of a sudden, box sets, it's post-CD, reissues, all these, all these new, new products are coming out of old music, but new bands would seek me out or a&R consultancy, I did some of that because the MCA credit was on my resume. I'm not even in LinkedIn. I it, it just people find me or I was still going to music 
or book events or still I was always on record company and film and TV lists and a lot of the work was organic. The first book deal was in 2004. $3,500 advance. Wow. You mean a real book here? Yeah, we want to do a book with you. University of Mexico Press. We want to do a second book with you. I think I can I could keep this going because I saw the internet and I saw the music that that people thought didn't have longevity, maybe a decade or two. It was going to have a 50-year career. I didn't know it would turn into what it's turned into, but Russ Reagan said in the 80s, one day you'll be able to go to a concert and leave with a recording from it. And I had people like Russ Reagan and a few other people that would check in with me and said, stick with it, kid. I said, well, I'm 50 years old now. There's no book deal, but I can't get an agent. I, but I'm not going to be. And then Patty Smith and I did an interview. She said, don't give anybody a sob story. I said, no, I'm not going to bitch how the way things work out. It could be better. I believe I'm doing a service. I believe something is, it's devotional art, and that maybe what I write might introduce 5, 10, 50, or 100 people to the mamas and papas, or the music of East LA, or the group Spirit, or God forbid, will you find out about Lauren Nero already? And I realized. That was happening when I would meet people. Oh my God, me and my boyfriend bought this album by blah, 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 because we read it about something you did years ago. Thank you. That stuff was just, it was like getting a booster shot. It, it's saying it really pushed me forward. Then okay, the book, so the book, Harvey, the books, the book Harvey, started happening. Yeah, you're in your 70s. You could die tomorrow. You could live another 30 years. How do you plan to support yourself as you continue? Do you have any savings? You inherited any money? Well, what has happened in the last 12 or 14 years, the world of music documentaries has really happened. And I've been asked to be in them and not just on screen, but actually production, consultancy. Money comes in the mail, direct deposit, uh, working on documentaries all the time, you know, also about to sign another book deal uh, for a book on the photographer, Ed Cariff. Uh, my brother Kenneth and I did a book on Guy Webster, the photographer. And um, I'm currently involved in a, a music documentary on the history of LA recording studios with the focus on gold star studios, where I'm like a writer involved in the interviews, writing the questions and co-producing this, these are fee-based jobs. Um, it's all working. And yes, I have a car, you know? So, so wait, yeah. Wait, wait, you have a car? You have yeah, a car now? Yeah, yeah. So When did you, know, you get a car? Very recently. And it's just, but the walking, I got to lose 35 pounds over a couple of years. And I, I do my editing in my head walking. And then I come back. And it gets done. This is 20 hour a day stuff for me because I'm not a natural writer, but I somehow feel the, the clout or the endorsement 
of many people around me that check in with me or want me to continue. And it, it's just really, you know, it just really feels like, and my writing's getting better. That's, I'm not on an oldies tour doing medleys and 55 minute sets. I'm doing three hour shows now better than ever. Read what's out there now. I know it, but I say to myself, well, maybe I have a story coming out in Ugly Things magazine. I'm not getting paid for it, but it's a group. I want people to know about spirit. Okay. But I know that my byline might generate some ads to the magazine, like my work with Record Collector News, which I'm on retainer and I head of editorial. I know that I'm supporting outlets. It does come back to you. And D.A. Penny Baker told me many years ago when I interviewed him for a Monterey Pop, Monterey International Pop book that Lou Adler and I were involved with with my brother. He said, magical, thing hap magical things happen when you take the money off the table. He was talking about Monterey Pop becoming nonprofit. So not all the writing gigs are fee-based endeavors. The karma and the dividends come back when somebody says, I, it happened last week. An email from France. Just read something about the mamas and papas. You danced on American Bandstand when they were there. Yes, I was. Yes, I did. We're doing a documentary for Arte, A-R-T-E, television, France and Germany, on the mamas and papas. We fly to town. I said, what's the fee? What's the credit? I'm there. It's happening weekly and every other week the last couple of years. Okay, Harvey, one other thing. We've talked about romance, but now we're the public. You know, you've lived 70 odd years. What about romance in your own life? Very interesting question. I, and I hope this doesn't sadden you. Didn't you just lose your mother recently? Well, about 15 months ago, whatever. Right. Okay. I am blessed to have a 99-year-old Alta Cocker Jewish mother. Wow. Okay. So let's start there. Let's just say that Harvey and Kenneth Kubernick have kind of been in Alta Cocker daycare when my dad made it to 92 and a half. He died in 2004. And your parents always stuck together. 68 years together. There's no, my parents started in 1947 to 1952 owning a dry cleaner in downtown LA where laundry was 15 cents a pound. My dad sold encyclopedias, sold swimming pools. And at age 40, he took a test to be a stockbroker. Then the thing really popped. But what I'm saying is, the last few years, when you have a widowed mother at 93, all hands on deck. She, she's in great health. Still, it's a daily check-in. It's babysitting. You can't, you know, I said, I said this to Chris Darrow. I said, there's no dating this summer. My brother's going to China. I have to monitor my mother. And he said, you're so lucky. My dad made 98. I said, she's my Jewish girlfriend for a while. I got it. So she's doing well until three months ago, not feeling well. Uh, subsequently, there's been, there were two hard, they go, they rush her to UCLA. They go, hey kids, here's the story. There's no more 
thread on her tires and her heart. Calcium deposits. She's old. She's 99. You can do nothing and see where it goes. Or we could get her a valve. Everybody huddled. My mother said, let's go for it. Valve operation. Then complications. Then pacemaker put in. Works fine. Here we are a month later. She went, she went to Ross dress for less and got her hair done last week. So what has happened, all energy is to help my brother and her and be on call 24 hours. I may sound like a small excuse, but it's the super priority. Well, I guess what I'm really asking is, I know you haven't been married. Does the nature of the work or the nature of the uh, economics of the work make it that you never got married? You know, because we all know we sacrifice it all for rock and roll. So what's it been like for you? I really like women. I have a date, I think, for the Ringo concert at the Greek Theater, and maybe another woman for the Elvis Costello concert, because I tell everybody, I need to have some fun in June. It's all cleared. Got backup people to monitor my mother. Have to produce the stuff six weeks in advance. And um, no alimony, no child support. But people say, why are you still doing this? Um, I saw my parents have such a strong marriage. I just kind of, I saw the teamwork involved, what it takes. I don't know if I was capable of going there, but, um, you know, there's opportunities out there. But right now, I never thought this avalanche of work would show up in the last four or five years. I planned on none of this. So it's like every day, I'm sure you get these emails. If they meet you, your quote, you might go to France. And here it is. It's not every day, but there's a request every day because what's happened. People are discovering, well, vinyls outsold, mono records. People are finding my work. The funny thing about this, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you on your podcast, I got a few comical, disturbing emails saying, Mr. Kubernick, you're such a good writer. Why do you steal other people's interviews from other places? And I, and I didn't answer. They don't happen a second or third time, but there was a contact number. And I emailed this person who actually saw me read at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. And I said, I don't steal anybody's stuff. He said, well, it's impossible for you to have, quote Johnny Cash from 1975. I just read something you wrote about Johnny Cash. I said, I did those interviews. And I was, what? No, that's not true. I, they're my interviews. So I had a dialogue. I had a meeting with a couple of poets, Jim, Dr. James Cushing and Harry Northup. And then I emailed a journalist, you might know him, author, Mark Myers from the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Fantastic guy, great author, bio books. And Isn't I said, Mark well, Myers, the brother, and he's from Canada of Mike Myers. No, no, this is Mark, Mark, Mark Myers just writes a lot, a lot of articles, does jazz, uh, Jazz Wax has a couple of beautiful books on the history of concerts. I said, I need to ask you a question. I'm, 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 people are, I've got a bunch of emails, well, four of them, 
people think that I'm uh, kiping other stuff because I go, Johnny Cash said, and blah, blah, blah. He said, you need to claim this stuff. But I said, the narrative gets disrupted if I start writing. Johnny Cash told me in a 1975 interview for the now defunct Melody Maker. And he said, you're going to have to do those things because today's people, he said, you look 50. They just assume you never knew Johnny Cash. Here you are in 2023 and you're talking about a 1975 interview. I said, I did the interview. It, here it is. He so what has happened? I've had to put blah blah blah. Told me David Ruffin told me in a 1976 interview. Robbie Robertson explained in an interview and dialogue I conducted with him. I it irks me, but I'm doing that now, and we're not getting those emails anymore. And I guess I might be the bald eagle or somebody that I was, you know. But you know, I wish somebody would say. Johnny Cash, 1975? I go, yeah, nobody gave a fuck about Johnny Cash. I got him at a Christian booksellers convention in Anaheim. And I said, to also tell you the truth, I have the same birthday as Johnny Cash. I wanted to meet and talk to Johnny Cash. I saw him 20 times over the years. And it's very deep and personal to me. So now I think people realize, and these platforms like you doing this today or being on coast to coast, people realized there is a 50-year thing going on here. He really did interview these people. And it's often blues or Motown people or icons like Johnny Cash. I never knew there'd be afterlife in this stuff. Rick Rubin and I had a couple of conversations. I interviewed him for a book. I said, Rick, I was down with Johnny before you got the gig. And I said, same birthday. And he said, I'm right next to you, fellow Pisces. Boom, clicked. So that's not an obstacle. It's just, I believe in the oral, a lot of oral history. And I'm watching some, by the way, I've had some things optioned for potential development for TV shows. That's been an income stream. But because I understand Hollywood a little bit and met and studied with Ramdas, he told me, well, Be Here Now book, you probably looked at it at your college. Do not get psychically addicted to outcome. So when the, the development person calls or the studio person calls for the Zoom call about optioning and I have a couple of people with me, I will go through it. I like the experience. I like the corn chowder at the Ivy. I like going through some of this stuff. 98% of the time, it doesn't go any further than the first step. But it's income, but the thing is, I know that I'm a cinematic writer. I'm born in Hollywood, overlooking the Hollywood 101 freeway on Sunset in Alvarado. I am a child of Hollywood, and I knew it can translate to screen. And um, we're just watching where it goes. You can't plan any things anymore. Um but things seem to be working out. But then again, the biggest mitzvah, when, and maybe you've been through this, and some of your people have been through this, when the doctor comes out of the, meets you in the waiting room, when you've got a 99-year-old on the table twice in three weeks and says, it's looking really good, that feeling is worth 10 dates with Playboy bunnies. Okay, 
Now, not only do you interview people, you maintain relationships with us. With them. You talked about your relationship and interview with Barry White. Tell us about a couple more. Rule number one, ask, bring something to the table immediately so you don't say the same stuff as everybody else. And maybe because I've been living out on the perimeter, like the door song, Jim Morrison mentioned we are stoned out in the perimeter. I'm not, I'm not writing on assignment most of the time for magazines. It's sort of my Bukowski training. You write it and you throw it out there and it lands. I knew him at the post office. I knew him from the mid-70s. You put it out there and see where it lands. Would I like the luxury of being on staff at 150 grand a year or something at a trade? Sure, I would like that pressure to see if I could do it. It hasn't happened yet. The friendships. So I always knew, ask a first question nobody has ever asked. It, it does dent. It causes a dent. I remember meeting Burton Cummings in 1974. I love the guess who. And I said, uh, why don't you tell me about that television show you used to do in Canada in the 60s where you did a lot of cover versions? He said, how do you know about that? And I said, well, I just, I know it's part of your history because I know people in Canada that used to watch you before you ever kind of came to the States. That kicked off a friendship that still exists 50 years later. I interviewed Ray Manzarek in 1974 at Mercury Records when he had his solo album out. I loved The Doors. I saw the original band. I was so excited to meet somebody in The Doors. I didn't ask for his I never did the autograph thing until way later. And I said to Ray, you went to UCLA when the UCLA Bruins were the basketball champs, did you play basketball? And he said, did I play basketball? And I was getting my economics degree from DePaul. I played basketball. And he said, you know, when the doors played, I'd always get mad when the promoter said, time to play a set. I go, and, and Ray would go, but UCLA is on a run. But because I made a basketball impression on Ray Manzarek, and then years later, I introduced him to coach John Robert Wooden. These things get birthed. Also, this is pre, I never was a tabloid guy. I'd ask questions. Okay, Bruce Botnick engineered your records. Tell me about Sunset Sound. Tell me about the tape stock. Tell me about the Sennheiser microphones. I sort of had some of that stuff that was just different than him plugging an album or having to talk about Jim dying in Paris every interview. And these things, and then all of a sudden they start referring you to people. Um, I, I, I mean, I've, listen, I've interviewed Keith Richards, uh, you know, uh, these things make impressions. So when you run into these people five or eight or 12 years later, they will walk across the room. Hey mate, how's it doing? You know, that kind of stuff means a lot to me. Um, I'm, you know, sadly, as we get older, we're losing people. But then I could say, well, I've, I'm keeping them alive in the work I'm doing. I mean, I have 20 books out and I must be thanked 
I don't know, somebody's tracking this for me. I think I'm thanked in 238 other books. And now there's a new little thing happening, which I'm cool with. Will you write blurbs for my first novel? Will you write a blurb on testimony on the back cover? And I said, yes, but don't stick me in indie book land exclusively. If Simon & Schuster kind of people show up and want me to write something on Leonard Cohen, okay, I want to have a foot in the corporate world and I want to have a foot with the first timer. Every week, David Kessel said, I have my first book coming out. Will you give me a quote on the back cover? Yes. These things start happening. And no, I don't bill for them. And then another thing started happening where people are asking me to write some letters of endorsement so they could go to graduate school. And I said, I couldn't get into these places myself. Why would you even ask me? But Dr. James Cushing, a professor, literature English professor, said, you do these things because you never know how it will get the other person forward. I said, I'll probably never see the other person again, or maybe 10 or 20 years. He said, don't even think about it. You are, he said, don't you remember when you never had a book or you got turned down 300 times or record labels for a year maybe weren't really taking your calls? Look what's going on. I said, okay, where's the next person who needs a blurb here? (laughs) And I know it's helping people. I'm a Pisces. It helps people. And I want to bring people on the ride with me. I know it sounds kind of hippie-ish. I'm from Hollywood, but you see, I didn't have to reinvent myself in Hollywood. I didn't come to Hollywood to make it. I'm born in Hollywood. So I'm showing a real different kind of Hollywood, which is support and collaboration and maybe possibility. All I know is it's working. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. 
I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and sociopolitical factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Okay, you introduced me to Andrew Lou Goldham. You continue to have contact. How did you meet and maintain a relationship with Andrew? Wow. I will say namaste, grateful for his presence in my life. When I got those first Rolling Stones albums, I didn't want to be Mick Jagger or be in a band. I liked the stuff on the back cover. I never really knew they were called liner notes. I think they were called jacket information. I said, this guy, the guy, this guy is like producing. I kind of know what a record producer is. This guy, the writing is like Anthony Burgess and Clockwork Orange or something. It's vibrant. I did a term paper on his liner notes on Aftermath or something in high school. I know that. I never thought I'd meet him. I, I probably could have. I went to New York when he was producing groups on RCA, like the Werewolves. I don't do those things. But I, I, th- I thanked him on a couple of my articles, maybe made a dedication to him, because his interviews were so fascinating, because he saw the big picture. And also, he did something very bold I don't think we'd see today, even in England, out of his own pocket. He would take ads out in like magazines like Disc and tout things like Pet Sounds when he didn't even have a piece of the action. That's really cool. So in 2000, I go to see Brian Wilson do Pet Sounds at the Hollywood Bowl. Yes, I know, Brian. Did I know I would do the liner notes in 2008 for the Pet Sounds 40th anniversary tour? No. Did I ever know I'd do the liner notes for the Elvis Presley 40th edition edition of the of the comeback special? That was the fulfillment to Grayland Landon 40 years later. I wrote about Elvis Presley and got a nice check when you do box set liner notes. That's a car. Okay. I go to see Brian Wilson. And I'm sitting next in a box with Henry Diltz and my friend David Wolf, who I, who I met in 1962, who I'm seeing next week at a Johnny Rivers show. And I'm sitting there ready. The lights are going down. And I'm not a backdoor Johnny guy. I'm very happy to see Brian because I'm watching this victory 
because I've seen Brian up and down through the 60s and the 70s, the houses. I've been there. I'm happy Brian Wilson is going to do Pet Sounds with, with the Wonder Mitts. And David Leaf walks by me because he's going to be there. <clears throat> and I kind of casually say, hey, what's the backstage scene like? Because this is the one time I'm not backstage at a Brian Wilson show. They had to pony up and see, you know, box seats up front. And he said, oh, Lou Adler's here and uh, Andrew Lou Goldham is here. I said, what? He said, yeah. And he, and he said, that's him walking in the row in front of you to the box seat. The lights are going down. And I go to tap him on the shoulder. And I said, Mr. Oldham, my name is Harvey Kubernick. I'm a big fan of your work. I would like to interview you. I'm, 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 I'm so delighted you're here because I know that you took out an ad in Disc Magazine, worshiping Pet Sounds the way he did it for other records on occasion. And he said, do you know Lou Adler? I said, not just, hi, how are you? And he said, um, get a hold of Lou Adler. I'm in town. And we'll have a dialogue. I said, okay. Got him on the phone passed the acid test. I think we were talking about sweet smell of success movies. It was all, it was movies and Lulu and Donovan and, you know, English stuff. And he said, okay, let's do an interview. And I did an interview with him for Discoveries Magazine. And then he said, here's my email in Bogota, Colombia. And I said, wow. Andrew Lou Goldham, I'm dialoguing. There must be something going on. I could call it a psychic tap on the back. It, but also it was my reward for supporting Brian Wilson, helping David Leaf on his book in 1978. I was seeing the rewards come in. I didn't have an agenda. And I interviewed Andrew and he said, well, keep in touch, mate. And we just dis de developed the correspondence. But then every six months or something, I'd write something. And he'd go, well done, lad. Like he's the headmaster in England. I never had any of that kind of stuff. Well done, lad. He said, nice one. You dropped in. And he said, wow. He said, I like your writing. And then he said, and I said, I can't wait to read your biography, Stone. And I, I talked to him about it. And then he called me on the phone and he said, would you come to Santa Monica for dinner? And I said, I will, but I, I, I'm going out with a girl and we have a weekend thing happening. But I'm telling her I'm going to meet Andrew Lou Goldham. And he goes, if she's a cool woman, she'll understand. And she said, I don't know who he is. Did you say he worked with the Rolling Stones? I said, I'll see you on Yum Kipper or something. <laughs> and so I went to have dinner with him. And he said, I like your writing. I said, well, I just don't say that because we're becoming friends. He said, no, it's choppy at times. But the information that and the messages, well done.
I said, thank you. And then he said, I'm doing Stone 2, a second volume. I need a writer in town who really understands Hollywood because, as you know, I did the Stones record, 64 to 67, at RCA Studios on Sunset Boulevard. And he said, he said, look, I could get somebody from a label or somebody who writes for Time or Newsweek, but you know where Ivar is, and I know you've been in that room at RCA. I said, Jose Feliciano, Henry Mancini, he said, you know the studios, you need to tell me and especially the readers, what it is like to be a teenager, 64 to 70, in town, and take us into the environment. And he said, by the way, don't look at the movie, become the movie. And I ended up having eight pages in his book, which I think is on Simon & Schuster. It led to some other interviews, jobs, close calls. But the thing is, I am in a Simon & Schuster book. I get, I get a chance to tell everybody about AM radio and hearing the Stones in this pre-FM radio thing. And then we became good friends to the point he's in town. And I said, I have an extra couple tickets for Ringo at the Greek. I'm going with a couple people. And he said, can I come along? I said, can you come along? You can sit in the front seat. We went out, had a pizza dinner with my friend, Dr. Cushing, and a lawn friend, who I think you know from years ago. I walk in there to the Greek theater, and I go, there's Bob Lefsitz, and there's Peter Frampton. And I said, you need to beat Bob Lefsitz before Peter Frampton. Oh. No, here's the sad part. He said, Harvey, I've already knew, worked, and helped Peter Frampton long before Bob Lefsitz. I said, well, let's meet them both. And I introduced you, and then you wrote something really funny, said, normally gods don't walk on earth, or you had a, a funny riff. And then he sent me an email, and it said, thank you, because he, he has manners. And then um, he said, your friend Lefsitz is coming to Bogota, Colombia. Did you go there 10 years ago? Or? Yeah. And I said, really? He said, yeah, he's uh, coming to town. I said, he said, thank you. He said, this is what we do for people. And I said, he just happened to be standing with this woman named Felice at the entrance. What if you weren't there? And then Andrew said, when are you going to learn there are no accidents? And I will say he deeply, when my dad died, in 2014, and I'm not complaining, 92, but Andrew never met his father. Andrew's mother was pregnant from a, a guy, a World War II guy that was shot down in, in the war. So he never physically met his father. And he said, I heard your father died. I go, yeah, it was a slow age, 88 to 92. The VA took care of him. I'm not complaining. I, the name game is to keep the mother going for 10 years. And he said, I want you to know something. You don't have to call me if you need help. And God forbid, don't go to some grievance counselor. I said, no, I'm, I'm not doing any of that. He said, 
you can find your parents or the deceased people anywhere you look if you focus on it. I said, wow. And he said, you're also carrying on your dad's mission. I said, well, I never became a stockbroker. He said, you're working and selling your catalog, aren't you? I go, yeah, there's some sync rights and all kinds of stuff coming in. He said, you are a stockbroker. And it, he's, he's just, he's fabulous. Uh, my brother and I, when he comes to town twice a year, mandatory dinner or lunch with me and my brother, sometimes it's just him and I. I know his family. I, I can't tell you um, the, the support he's given me. He just shows up at the right time with the right email. Like, I won't get a TV gig. And then four seconds later, I check my emails. What's, what's the next shot, kid? And all of a sudden, I'm not moaning about losing a TV writing job. I just, he, he's right there, just his name on the screen. So that's my Andrew Lou Goldham story. Just fantastic records he produced. And, and um, he's also taught me a bit more. He said, value your independence. I said, well, I have an internal team working with me. It never worked out where there were managers and agents and glam squads and for higher publicists supporting my scene. And he said, young man, look at the freedom you have waiting then, instead of waiting for the committee to vote on everything. I go, yeah. Laura Nero and I had that same conversation too. I, I knew her last 10 years of her life, which I have a picture of her in my, my place. Okay. That was when, you know, uh, she made a comeback album on uh, Columbia. She wouldn't go on SNL because she wasn't happy with her appearance and she sort of faded away. How did you end up connecting with her in that period of her life? In 19, remember, I'd always engineer in when I could, I'd interview the producer or the engineer when I could. Everybody wanted the lead singer. I'll go talk to John Densmore, the drummer of the Doors. He's in the band. In 1976, I interviewed Bob Crew, who was hot on the charts, Frankie Valley, swearing, swear to God, My Eyes Adore You, co-writing stuff. Also, he had a big hit with Lady Marmalade. He co-wrote it. He said, would you like to go? He said, Laura Nero's coming to town, an old friend of mine. I said, yeah, I tried to get tickets for the Santa Monica Civic, but I wasn't going to go to a ticket broker and pay $10. And he said, well, why don't you come with me and you'll meet Laura? I said, what? He said, yeah. You know, I, I knew a lot of the session musicians that were on her early albums, on, one on Verve. I said, I'm driving. Let's go. I go to the Santa Monica Civic and I'm introduced to, jo to, to Laura Nero. Hello. And she said, what's your name? Harvey Kubernick. I have all your records. Um, and she said, and what are your parents' names? And I said, well, my father is Marshall and my mother is Hilda. And she starts giggling. And she says, well, my mother is named Gilda. <laughs> so we can have Gilda and Hilda. And she says, I live in Danbury, Connecticut. I think that's what she said. There's no internet then. 
here's my phone number. You can call me. She said, we're not doing an interview. No. She said, I could tell you're different than these managers that are knocking on my door. And I had to escape from the Mishigas of the music business. She could talk Yiddish. And I said, are you Jewish? She said, the top half is Italian, but the bottom half is Jewish. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I had a call with her. And then I didn't, I'd see her when she'd come to town, McCabe's. I never bothered her. I was happy for the one-off. My friend Nancy Wretched brought her a tuna fish sandwich at that same Santa Monica Civic Auditorium show because her publishing company, I think, was called Tuna Fish Music. And, and the Laura, I used to call them the Laura girls. She was, I was a first album freak and I appreciated Eli. And I, I liked her. I just, I felt this, this connection with her. And then in the 90s, I get a call one night. Harvey, this is Gilda's daughter. I go, Laura Nero? And two friends were over. And she said, you don't, one guy says, and he's with, there's a girl there. You don't have to impress us. I said, listen, Laura Nero's on the phone. Why don't you guys like smoke a joint or something? And I, I need to talk to her. Which we hear, Are you interviewing her? No, we don't have that trip going on. We had like a three hour talk. And she said, I'm trying to record. I'm looking for an independent label. I've just recorded maybe for Cypress Records. I think that was a label or was going to. And she and I said, oh, I, you know, and she and she said, aren't you so lucky you don't have agents and managers and people telling you what to do? I said, well, I'd like to have some of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, no, you're not supposed to. I said, no, the advances would be so much bigger. The other jobs would be happening. I don't like repping myself when the money call comes in or the lawyer email and turning it over to my lawyer and then I get his bill. This stuff is depleting me. She said, you'll realize you're lucky one day, but I'm calling you for a reason. So what's that? I'm starting to record at home. I need a record label and I just need some help. And I just kind of figured you'd know some people. I said, yeah. I said, well, why don't you talk to Larry King, the main buyer or manager, Tower Records on Sunset. He will connect you to some of the independent labels you're looking for. She said, that is so nice of you. I said, what? I said, I want nothing from this. But if you come to the caves or that venue in Santa Monica, there was a theater in Santa Monica she played. My father's place. Yeah. She said, I'll get you in. And she said, oh, that's great. She said, you don't need tickets. I go, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I need a ticket or two. I'd like to take a girl. And she said, oh, no, you're coming to the sound check. I want to introduce you to my friend Maria and my girls. What? She said, you're one of us. You're, you are, you know, you're not like the New Yorkers at the record labels. I said, no. And I would see her anytime she came to town. I brought her food. I didn't badger her. And we just had, but then all of a sudden the phone start, 
There were no calls returned. I waited a week or two. No call. Left another voicemail. Hi, this is Laura. No call back. Started getting a little scared. Waited another month. No call back. And my friend Rosemary said, there's some medical shit going down here. It happens to us women. I said, okay, I'm not going to badger, call anybody at the village voice. I'll just see how it plays. And then she left the physical planet. I thank her in my books. I know I probably had 8, 10, 12 encounters with her. But that Gilda Hilda thing, which I'm telling for the first time, I was interviewed for one book by her by a guy named Mark Shipper, but it never came out. I'm not in the Michelle Court book on Laura Nero. But to this day, if there's a reissue or that double album, Best Of, or they finally put out that Fillmore East show that you went to, somebody at Columbia knew the history and said, well, they actually called me on the phone when people used to talk to people on the phone. Hi, this is Randy Hacker columbia the publicist said harvey there's a laura nero live at fillmore east coming out i know you've thanked her in your books and you must have known her can we send you in advance and and then it was groovy and then you wrote about it and i know that show blew your fucking mind and i kind of felt i'm carrying laura nero forward they'll be 10 people who may hear this, they may buy the first songs album. They might buy Eli or secretly, kids, check out the record with LaBelle. I mean, I know something, you put her, you plant her name and some people go down the rabbit hole. Uh, she means a lot to me. I wasn't in love with her. There was no romantic stuff. It was the poet person that I thought was right there with Bob Dylan, always. And, um, but, you know, she, we would talk about food and stuff like that. It was, it was just, it was really a pleasure to talk to somebody, you know, that had kind of a New York accent too. And it was, these were late night calls and my whole day would be better the next day. I used to get that when I'd hear from, Ray Manzarek or Brian Wilson used to call a lot um, if there was, you know, and they would, I always felt this is beyond a gig. These are people that I now have 50-year relations with. This is half-century stuff. And a lot of these people, they're either 5, 10, 12 years older than me. They're kind of leaving the planet. And I told Andrew Goldham, you know, I guess I'm becoming the messenger I, I'm going to go with that because I could either get bummed out, reinvent myself, walk away from my history, or thoroughly embrace it. And the young bands and the young punk rock people, whether it be Man's Body, whether it be a pan-global group called T, they're finding me because we like a lot of the same music. And I interviewed... Bert Bacharach with Elvis Costello in 1990 for Musician Magazine. Did I know there'd be an Elvis Costello Bert box set that came out a month ago and that Bert would leave the planet? And all of a sudden, when you 
are connected with these people. You inherit their fan clubs, their followers, or you run into them at Farmer's Market or at Musso and Frank's. And I don't do social media, Twitter. I'm probably going to be embracing that a bit more. But they just have the greatest things. Also, I had a friendship with Leonard Cohen, more of an acquaintanceship, acquaintance with him. I did three long interviews with him in the 70s, 74, 76, 78. I'd actually meet him at like uh, some restaurants. I went to both of his houses in LA when he, he said, I'm living in Brentwood. Do you know if there's a deli? I said, yeah. And he said, I've been to Cantor's. I've been to the place on Sunset and Crescent Heights, which just closed. Is there a deli that has smoked fish, smoked meat? I said, what is smoked meat? I said, I'm a deli guy. I won't eat tongue or anything. He said, find a deli and we will eat. And I took him to Jerry's or Junior's on Pico and Westwood. I think it was called Junior's. And every six months, I'd get that phone call. I'd write about him. Subsequently, I'm quoted in five Leonard Cohen books. And then he just was an advice person. I will tell you this. In 1974, I called up Columbia Records. I'd like to interview Justin Pearson. I want to interview Leonard Cohen for the Hollywood Press. Well, he's doing tenor news that day. He's playing the troubadour. We'll put you on the Troubadour guest list. What? I don't have to pay? Yeah, you'll be in the roped in section. Okay. We'll try to get you the interview. You know, he's got 10 interviews. Judy Painter calls back with Charlie Copeland. Leonard would love to talk to you two gents. There's just one problem. I said, what's the problem? He said he has to do a passport renewal at the Canadian embassy, will you join him in a limousine ride? I said, that's the problem. He said he felt he should ask first. You might be busy that afternoon. I said, we're going to the Canadian embassy with you. Do the interview. I had my homework down. I knew who the producers were. He said, very good. Let's go to the embassy. We were bonding. And I said, Mr. Khan, no, the name is Leonard. Um, can I ask you a question? I know you have a couple of kids. I know you're 35. You're kind of old. You go out with a lot of women and write about them. How do you, how do you get married or how do you keep a relationship going? Because what's the secret? And he turns to me and Justin in the limousine, right? And he says, relationships are complicated. You know, uh, we're going to leave it on that. I always say relationships <laughs> and ended, are and by hard. The way, and That's I a good that. note with that wisdom. <laughs> we obviously could go on for hours more, but we've come to the end of the time we have. Harvey, I want to thank you so much for doing the podcast. Uh, it's been a pure pleasure. Um, you know, we go back a while and, uh, you know, you've seen the growth of music docs. You've seen th all the transitions. It's very educational reading the newsletter. Um, 
But I was right. You went to law school out here. You you couldn't wait to get to the beach. True or false? No, uh, true. I took a couple of years off before I went to law school. That's my own personal story for another time. But I will say, I used to hear from Harvey. Harvey would always say, if I wrote about Linda Ronstadt, it's really Chris Darrow. Chris Darrow is the person. Is involved. That's right. That, that really, you know... Uh, there were some bumps in the road earlier before we actually met face to face, but as you can tell by Harvey's memory, you know, he's really an authority. He's dedicated his entire life to this for us, as he says. So Harvey, thanks for doing the work. I, uh, I appreciate everything. And I, I really have a great team of people around me now, like Chris Alpert and so many people and people like Justin Pierce are still on the team and, I kind of feel we're all going toward a common cause, and I'm just delighted to do this podcast because um, we got to talk about music, but it I will, I'll end it with this. When I brought up the Beach Boys to you, you weren't sheepish or apologetic when I first met you. You raised your hand like it was a Hadassah meeting or something. You don't understand. I moved here because, oh yeah, people all the way had to relocate. That music from the West Coast, it was the music. Maybe it was the sunshine. Who knows? And you're a snow person. But you wave that flag so huge for the Beach Boys, it helped define your life. Isn't well, that amazing? Well, you know, you're living in California, and this was before all the tax incentives so every TV show, every movie was made in L.A. There was the Southern California surf sound. Let's Okay, I remember one. I came to California in 66, but I remember coming to California in 73 and literally crossing the line from Nevada to California and Lake Tahoe and say, it just felt different. And at this late date, it just cracks me up with all this anti-California stuff. They have no idea what they're missing to this day. Yes, real estate is expensive. Yes, traffic is bad. Uh, but as I normally say, I could talk about negative things about Southern California all day long, but there's nowhere I'd rather live. Every, As you know, everybody in the music business has to come through at least once a year. So oh, by the way, I... I'd have a different life or career if I relocated to New York and then went to Paris. Some of those options have been on the table. Answer this one thing because I'd like to get the question for, answer from you. This is Gary Strobel, who I work with. He's my archivist. He's Henry Diltz's photo librarian. He's from Cicero, Illinois, kind of Chicago. I said, why did you move here? And he said, the monkeys were done here. And also, you have no idea what a snow day is like in school. I said, what the fuck is a snow day? He said, you can't leave the house. They, you, I, I know what a smog day is. I know, did they have snow days in Vermont and all that? Well, in Connecticut? You know, they absolutely had snow days. We'd turn on a transistor in Connecticut and they would list all the towns. Then my understanding was they did it via Facebook. Now as a result of COVID, they say there may never be snow days again. However, you know, there are certain things. In the East Coast, we play board games. Not as big a thing here because of no. the rain and the snow, okay? I 
like the weather here. That is not why I moved. Having said that, whenever you go somewhere else, it rains one day. That's cool. Then it rains another day. You go, what's up with this? You know, I have people that say, oh, yeah, the summer in New York, every weekend it rains. You know, it was like, you know, you make plans to go somewhere, play tennis, do something outside in the summer in California. Weather is not the issue. It's happening. I, I, I'm just so glad that you like the Jan and Dean Command Performance album. Wait, 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 wait. I mean, we could go on about this Thank for you. Thank you for that. I'm glad. But Listen, the Jan you. and Dean Command Performance album was the first Jan and Dean album I bought. And I after that, I bought Ride the Wild Surf wow. and other ones. But I played that so much, the record turned gray, and I had to use masking tape around the corners. And I still have it man and then you know i heard from the guy who's now in nashville who promoted the concert that was fred vale yeah yeah fred vale yeah right that was the shit i can still hear the horns you know and uh dead man's curve not to mention the fact you know when you come to la all these things you've been hearing forever come alive you know not only Pico and Sepulveda, but El Monte Legion Stadium, Doheny. You know, we know Doheny, but when you live on the East Coast, you have no reference Doheny. And then the beaches, trestles, also, you know, Doheny again. Yes. It's like, it's living history. And just to close it out, what people don't realize, um, the difference between East Coast and West Coast. Let's say East Coast and Los Angeles. In the East Coast, where you went to college, who your parents are, very important. Los Angeles, the most important thing is what kind of car you drive. That's just phony enough for me. No one's sitting there talking about my parents. No one's asking me where I went to school. Everybody's on an even playing field. And when it comes to L.A. and Hollywood, people are so narcissistic, they don't give a shit about you. They're not in your business. I, can be, I feel free. And this is the only place, never mind, I go on about politics, whatever. People have no idea how great it is here. I mean, I, I could testify ad infinitum. And the people, first and foremost, LA is a shitty tourist town. It's a lifestyle town. You know, it's not about going to say, yeah, go to the beach, go to the Capitol Records Tower. The people who leave are the people who came with dreams and just can't handle that their dreams of fame didn't happen. But as you say, if you spend the time and you feel, I mean, you're here long enough, the world is not that big. You meet the right people, but you, but it takes a long time, but it's a lifetime thing. And, and I should, I shall, I'll close with this because it just ties it all in. About 20 years ago, I saw Willie Nelson at the Wiltern Theater. <clears throat> I was introduced to him backstage. I said, Willie, can I have a couple minutes of your time? He said, sure, son. What do you need? I said, thank you for always mentioning Ray Price. He's in my band. I said, yeah, but I also know he did your first song. He sure did. And I said, I'm, and thank you for the work with Patsy, Patsy Klein. He said, well, thank you. And I said, I have a music business question to ask you, and it's kind of a book business question. What do you need, son? I said, it doesn't work on logic, getting deals, there's agents. Uh, it, 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 I don't know if talent is it 
5%, 1%, it seems like the game is kind of rigged. And, 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 and he said, I said, I'm not really asking for advice or help. I just would like a little clarification because I know they ran you out of Nashville to Austin. Your hair bothered people. You had to be a songwriter. You had to do all kinds of things that didn't happen for you until a little later. I think that's going to happen for me. And he said, son, I'm going to tell you one thing. You have to outlast everybody. (laughs) On that note, bada bing, Harvey. It's been great talking to you. Until next time, this is Bob Lefset. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Kerry Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.